to do. Does it sound okay? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so I thought tonight, uh, a little bit story time. <laughs> I want to talk about, um, well, to begin with, a few of the, the nuns, the enlightened nuns from the time of the Buddha that we know about because of uh, the Terigata, which is in the Pali Canon, which is a book of the enlightened nuns' poems. But just want to talk and tell the story of two or three of them, and then tell the stories of um, a few more modern women teachers that just reminded me, the stories remind me of these women. Some are dead, some I know. Um, so just to get a sense, you know, that mostly we only hear about the monks and the men because they write the history. But to, just, to, just to, I find it inspiring and fun as well. So, of course, to begin, before I say anything much about the, the time of the Buddha in terms of the nuns, before, it was quite a while after he started his um, sangha of monks that there weren't nuns. It was just monks for a long time. And many of you are familiar with this story, so I'll just tell the story, not too much detail. But um, the woman who is really responsible for getting the Buddha to finally agree to begin an order of bhikkhunis, of nuns, was a woman who's known to us as Mahapajapati Gotami, who was actually his um, aunt, but raised him. When the Buddha was a week old, his mother died, and her sister took in um, the Buddha to be and raised him. Both of them, the two sisters, were both married to King Suddhodana, so that made it easy, you know. (laughs) Right, yeah, the big family could stay together, you know. So, um, So she was his stepmother and his aunt. And so, after the Buddha left, which you heard, and went and became awakened, at some point he came back to his family, and um, both his father and his son, Rahula, and also his aunt, Mahapajapati Gotami, and other of, her, of his cousins, you know, all were really interested, became disciples, and came to some degree of wisdom, understanding. And as time went on, King Suddhodana died. And at that time, the way, the, even though these were more in the high-class people, but the way the culture was set up, that the woman's identity was mainly derived from either her husband or her son or her father, you know, by the male she was connected to. So her husband had died, and her sons had gone off with her nephew to be monks. And there are a lot of other women, they say, in this situation. So that was one thing. Also, of course, she was very inspired by the Dhamma. So then another thing that happened is that there was a big um, dispute coming to war about water rights between two clans. The Sakyan clan, which is the uh, Buddha Gotama's clan, his father's clan, and the Kaliyans, which happened to be Pachapati Gotami's clan. So these two clans got in a big struggle, a big fight about water rights. So even back then, no, 
what we're coming to. And um, a lot of men were killed. So they, somebody went and tried to get the Buddha to come and um, help to solve this, as he was part of both clans. And it's said that he came and gave such an inspiring discourse that a lot of more of the men went off with him and ordained. <laughs> so now all these men are going off and ordaining. So two things. Um, um, Pajapati Gotami was left sort of alone, but also many other women. And both because of her natural personality as a leader, but also her position, they kind of would turn to her. So they all decided together that they really also wanted to follow the holy life as renunciates. So they went to the Buddha, where he, where he happened to be at the time. And this is really, you can see from her story, the power of the faith and the energy it takes and the courage and the persistence, the determination. We know that takes that for all of us, but for women in particular at this time, a lot more, a lot more determination. So... She went to the Buddha and asked him, you know, saying, uh, it would be good, it would be good, Lord, if women could be allowed to renounce their homes and enter into the homeless state under the Dharma and discipline of the Tathagata. And he said, enough, Gotami, don't set your heart on women being allowed to do this. So she asked the requisite three times, usually at the end of the third time, if he was going to agree, he did. But he didn't agree. He said no. And then didn't really explain it. We don't really even know why today. But anyway, he said no. And then after some time, he left with his monks and set out for another town, Vesali. So she didn't give up. Pajapati said she cut off her hair. And with, they say, 500 women, which just means a lot. They say 500, no. That's what Andy Olensky said, who is the director of the study center. When it says 500 were enlightened, it just means a lot. (laughs) So they all set off together, walking barefoot, as the Buddha and the monks would have been doing, and and went to Vesali. (coughs) I don't know how far that was. Sounds far. (laughs) When they got there, they went to the grove where he was, and it's, it's said that she and the women stood outside the sala where the Buddha was with swollen feet and all dusty from walking all these miles. And she stood outside the hall there, kind of weeping. And here Ananda comes in. I don't know if you remember I mentioned Ananda. He's always the kind of intermediary. He was the Buddha's attendant, but instead of like with some... You know, you hear with some gurus and all the attendants, it's sort of like keep everybody out and control the inner circle for the special people. Ananda was just the reverse. Whatever it was, he would try to get people to come and hear the Dhamma, come and hear the Dhamma. It's beautiful, really. So he came, and also Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, so there's, he was also related. They're all related. To, he was related also <laughs> <laughs> to Mahapajapati. So he came and said, why are you crying? And she told him. So he said, okay. And he went in and talked to the Buddha. And first he just said by, you know, she's standing outside on the porch, her feet are swollen, covered with dust, crying because you do not permit women to renounce. It would be good if women were to have permission. He said the same thing, enough Ananda, three times. So then Ananda also, faith, determination, perseverance, but with great devotion, he said, okay, let me think of, ask it another way. 
And this is what I love. He says, are women able, Lord, when they have entered into homelessness to realize the fruits of stream entry, once returner, non-returning, and arhat ship? He said, yes, Ananda, they are able. This is exactly what goes through all the teachings, you know, that there's no difference between gender or class or how one lives as to the potential for awakening. It's for all of us. So he said yes. So then Ananda says, well, since that's possible, and since Pajapati was of great service to you, she was your aunt, your nurse, your foster mother. When your mother died, she even suckled you at her own breast. It would be good if women could be allowed to enter into homelessness. He goes, okay. (laughs) Okay, Ananda. (laughs) And then he made eight special rules for women have to follow. So in some way there was a little bit difference. But and the other kinds of rules. But basically, in terms of practice and awakening, it's really that the bhikkhunis were on an equal level with the bhikkhus. So the eight special rules. We really don't know. I really don't know how much of that's cultural how much if he was trying not to um, shock the lay people because at that time there weren't equal nuns in other systems. I really don't know. I'm not trying to explain it. But anyway, so, so she was really absolutely the one who, through her faith and determination and just love of the Dhamma and awakening, talked the Buddha into establishing a community of nuns. And so she, of course, became um, one of the first teachers. Many, many women followed her because of just of her position. But the community of nuns grew and grew and became very, very stable. So I just, oh yes, want to read her poem as it's translated by Andy Olensky, who was um, for many years the director of the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies. Just, you know, not all of it. I'll read some of it. Praise to Buddha, you foremost among all beings, you who have released me from pain, and so many other folk, too. All suffering has been understood. The source of craving has withered. Cessation has been touched by me on the eightfold noble path. I have been mother and son before, and father brother, grandmother, too. Not understanding what was real, I flowed on without finding peace. But now I've seen the Blessed One. This is my last compounded form. The onflowing of birth has expired. There's no more re-becoming now. See the gathering of followers, putting forth effort, self-controlled, always with strong resolution. This is how to honor the Buddhas. So that's you guys. Yeah. She's talking to the nuns there, really, but that's you, the gathering of followers, putting forth effort, self-controlled, with strong resolution. This is how to honor the Buddhas. And Buddhas really meaning the awakened heart, mind. This is how to honor that. So... Mahapajapati Gotami. So as the Bhikkhuni Sangha grew, you know, it really, as well as with the Bhikkhu Sangha, really showed that 
um, in, in terms of um, societal structure, there's many ways that the Buddhist was quite radical because once the nun entered, and it was the same for, for bhikkhus, um, all, any, any element of society, you could say, was welcome. And once you became uh, part of the sangha, the only kind of ranking was their seniority of when you joined. So there were um, consorts to kings, and then there were um, the queens, and consorts to king were like their, not their actual married queens, but their mistresses or whatever, but they had a very high position. Respectable middle-class women, really poor women, prostitutes, really rich courtesans, beggars, young, really old, some who were really totally miserable when they became nuns, some who were really just filled with faith, the whole range, even some who were enslaved, servants, all different kinds of women. And so I'm not going to talk about a lot of the women because I want to talk about others, but there's the, the awakened poems are representative of all of those. It's not just the rich queens and consorts who are the ones who awaken. It's like has nothing to do with it. Just like the story I told her, maybe I didn't tell it. <laughs> but the Buddha looked over a group of people to see who's ready to hear the Dhamma, and the one who was ready was the poor leper who had just come because he thought they were giving out food. <laughs> you never know. So it's the same with the women. So it's really, you know... Awakening is the potential of everyone. So the current day person I thought of, is not quite on a par with Mahapajapati Gautami, because who could be, right? Who else is the, the aunt of the Buddha? Uh, but anyway, today in Thailand, uh, I want to talk about Venerable Dhammananda Bhikkhuni. She's a Thai woman. Her um, lay name was Dr. Chatsumar Kabul Singh. She was a actually very well-known um, professor at Thammasat University in Bangkok. She's a PhD professor of philosophy and religion. So, and she's still alive. So just a, a little quick synopsis of her life. Born in 1944, and her mother, Vora May, uh, ordained, was very devout. And so obviously, after she was born, <laughs> her mother ordained as a as an A-precept nun, which is in the Theravada tradition at this point, the bhikkhuni, the full bhikkhuni ordination had died out, although the Mahayana still exists. So especially in the um, strict Theravada countries, Thailand and Burma in particular, where Buddhism is also the state religion, the women can ordain as eight or ten precept nuns, but not as full bhikkhunis on a par with bhikkhus. And it's not recognized okay, at this point. So that's starting to change, and she's a key mover in that in Thailand. So her mother um, was very devout, and uh, in 1971, she, her mother, went to Taiwan and ordained in the Mahayana tradition as a bhikkhuni and came back to Thailand and founded a, a temple, a meditation center, that's called Songdama Kalyani, which means temple where women uphold the Dhamma. So she founded that in 1971. So this is the, the heir 
that Chatsuman Kabul Singh grew up in. And I noticed, actually, as I was, the, the women I just that came to me to talk about, they're all like Thailand, Burmese, Indian. So I thought, I don't mean to say it's only possible if you grew up in a Buddhist country. But, but what I feel the support is that really growing up, the sense of faith is strong. You, you, you've grown up with that in a culture. You don't have to kind of, the faith in the Dhamma the faith in practice, even a lot of people that don't practice have great faith in it. And so coming in, uh, growing up in a, in a country where that, uh, like for me, in a country where I didn't know anything about Buddhism, it certainly wasn't taught. I didn't have natural faith. There's a whole kind of another level of having to get in that you don't have to there. Anyway, so she grew up and um, taught for 27 years at the university and then took early retirement. And in 2001, she went to Sri Lanka and became a samaneri, which is like a, a novice uh, bhikkhuni or monk. And then in 2003, in Sri Lanka, so they had reestablished in Sri Lanka <clears throat> some bhikkhunis. And she went to Sri Lanka and took full bhikkhuni ordination <coughs> and came back to Thailand. So in the Theravada lineage in Thailand, she was the first woman who came ordained as a bhikkhuni in the Theravada lineage. But you must understand this is completely controversial in Thailand still, even where this was 2003, <coughs> but it's still controversial. But so coming back, um, many um, monks and lay people really were very uh, opposed to her, even saying it was illegal uh, because it's part of, part of when the part of the Theravada religion as opposed to practice and awakening. That's part of the, um, the political religion of the country. There's a whole other set of kind of laws and rules that get involved that don't want to, same like in Burma, different, but like that. But so she had a huge resistance, very controversial, a lot of people really angry, but also support, and not just from women. There were also plenty of monks who supported her. So she's still there. She went back to Songdama Kalyani. It's still there. She settled down and uh, really began practicing. She's very vibrant, speaks great English. So like if you go online, you can hear talks by her. Um, very, you know, vital and vivacious. And so she's been working tirelessly, really, to reestablish the Theravada bhikkhuni lineage in Thailand. So that's what she's been doing since 2003, and the, the temple has, has grown. They, she's also very well known uh, in terms of being a scholar um, around the world. She's, um, if you go on their website, it says at the top of the opening, it says, everything begins here in our hearts. That's what she says. So in uh, BBC, I, I, when I was just Googling her, I saw that BBC listed her among the 2009 100 most influential women in the world. So she's getting to be well-known. And it said in that article that now all over Thailand, not just at her place, there are now 270 bhikkhunis nationwide. So slowly, slowly, it's growing. And in and, and her center, they also are tuning into an ecological awareness social awareness, just different times a couple of years ago where, say, for 
I can't remember how long, two weeks or a month, she'd have a special time where hundreds of women could come and ordain temporarily, you know, and practice for a few weeks and go. So very, very um, powerful and having a huge effect in these days. So just read one quote where she's explaining what she's doing. I do not choose to be ordained because I want people to recognize me. I did it because I want to carry on the heritage of the Lord Buddha. I'm trying to revive the four pillars of Buddhism, something the Buddha talked about a lot, the fourfold sangha. Bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, laymen, and laywomen that will sustain the religion into the future. And the Buddha did talk about if you have those four pillars, then the sasana will continue. I don't mind if some people reserve different opinions about bhikkhunis. The public will be the ones to judge our worth. That's just a typical example of how she talks. But so, you know, this is really, take a really strong heart and a real sense of dedication, but she is really doing it and having a huge effect. So I just wanted to mention her. Okay. Now, there's so many, you know, it's hard to choose, and I can see I'm never going to get through, even I thought I really narrowed it down. So the next um, um, awakened nun from the time of the Buddha that I just wanted to mention is one whose name was Dhammadina. And she was, after she was awakened, she was considered, they all had little name, little taglines of what they were. She was considered the foremost in preaching in expounding the Dhamma. It said, in fact, it's not just a poem, but there's actually a whole sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, number 44, that's called the the shorter set of questions and answers, that are actually, she's the one speaking. The questions are asked of her, and she's the one answering. And of course, at the end, the person keeps asking, and she said, well, go ask the Buddha. And he went to the Buddha, it's already unusual that a man's coming to a bhikkhuni, you know, for teaching. But so he went to the Buddha, reported everything, and the Buddha said, "Just as as Dhammadina has said, so I would have said." You know, her word is they call it Buddha vachana, not the same as the Buddha's teaching. So that's really powerful there in the Majjhima Nikaya. So her story, she um, had a happy marriage. She was the wife. Her husband's name was Visaka. Fairly important, fairly well-to-do, not a suffering life. Uh, he was an important man in Rajagaha. And when he first ran into the Buddha, he off, was off one day and he heard the Buddha's teaching. And when he came home, he was really moved by it, very inspired. And when he came home, instead of the, you know, normally friendly, coming in, eating together, he just kind of was distracted and passed by without even noticing her. He seemed in another world. She goes, what's wrong? Are you angry? You can relate, right? What's wrong, honey? Are you angry? And, and, and he said, uh, <laughs> no, he had just been thinking about things. But he said, you know, really from his heart, you know, after hearing the Buddha, I'm really called. I, I, I really want to renounce the world. I want to go and join his Sangha of bhikkhus. <coughs> And he said, so I support you whatever you want. I'll give you all my wealth. I'll support you in whatever you need, you know. So she thought it over. And she said, you know what? I want to renounce also. Because the bhikkhunis obviously existed then. 
So he said, okay, and he put her in a golden palanquin and sent her off, you know, to the bikunis, and she, she joined up. And then, you know, you would, you would not be in touch with the home. So she became a bhikkhuni, and she practiced, and as obviously, since she's one of the Arhan nuns, she became awakened. And after some time after that, she happened to go back to Rajagaha. And it turned out her husband hadn't become a bhikkhu after all. He got, oh, you know, whatever. He hadn't. But <laughs> he was still really interested. So he's actually the one who went to her for teachings, who's asking the questions in the sutta, right? So, I mean, he's really, he can see she's awakened, really deep respect. So that's kind of a cool story, you know, that she really went. So motivated by him, but she just had more energy, more faith. So... I won't read you the whole sutta, just my favorite line from it. It's, he's asking her, what is meditation? And she says, meditation is the focusing of the heart, or unification of mind. He keeps going on and on until he's asking about Nibbana, and finally she says, go talk to the Buddha, go talk to the Buddha. But it's a very, you know, very deep wisdom sutta, and very inspiring, you know. Sayada Upandita used to often say, women make the best yogis somehow. It wasn't that women are more able, but just somehow in his experience, and this is mostly Burmese people that he'd be working with, the women just had some kind of, of commitment or steadiness or something that was more frequent, maybe for whatever reason. Just putting it out there. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to talk about two um, women, great women teachers. One is no longer alive, but Guy talked about her the other night, Upasaka Ki Nanayon. And she's the one whose um, talks make up this book, Pure and Simple, that he just quoted a little bit from. And this book her talks, and it's put together and translated by Tanisaru Bhikkhu from Metta Vihara. So very interesting. So I just thought I'd give you a little bit about her life. You make it like a real person. So she's Thai, was Thai, born in 1901. And uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu says that she was the foremost woman Dharma teacher in Thailand in the 20th century. And she remained a lay woman. She lived an eight, uh, an eight precept lay woman. So that's kind of like you all here, the people who are in eight precepts but not taking robes. That's how she chose to live her life. So she was born in Rajburi to a merchant family, not super rich, but they had little shops, the eldest of five children. Her mother was somewhat religious, so she grew up again, you know, with a, a sense of the faith in the Dhamma, but not really heavy duty, but it was familiar. And um, Tanisar Bhikkhu says that, he read that she said, seeing the suffering of her mother during the birth of her siblings, just seeing how much suffering that was, and then apparently her parents had a painful separation. And just seeing the suffering of that kind of um, just convinced her that she never wanted to marry. So she didn't marry. And through her teens and early 20s, she ran a small store, which she was using to support her elderly father in his old age. And she studied the Dhamma a lot in her spare time. And in her mind, she was working and saving up until she had enough, um, until she could go off and live a, a quiet, simple life, a secluded life, and just practice for the rest of her life. 
So her aunt and uncle at this time had a small forest hut not so far away at the base of a mountain. And sometimes she would go there and practice. So that was a familiar place. So at the end of World War II, when the war had ended and things were starting to settle down a bit, I guess she decided this was her chance. So she handed the shop over to one of her younger sisters, and she and her aunt and uncle went off together to stay at this little land they had at the foot of what's called the Royal Park Mountain in English, or Khao Swan Luang. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong in Thai, but that's the name of the place, Khao Swan Luang. And she and they stayed there the rest of her life. When they first moved in, it's a lovely forest at the foot of this mountain, but when they first moved in, it was just lived in this old abandoned monastic dwelling. So they're living very frugal, very Spartan. Obviously, people weren't much coming to support them. And they just dedicated themselves to meditation. And that was it for the rest of their lives. But obviously, gradually, they made the place a little more livable. And as she kept on practicing and practicing, you know, people would come, mostly women, would kind of be drawn and come and practice with them a little while. And she started to, when she was feeling well, she would just give little Dharma talks, and more and more Dharma talks, more and more people were drawn. And it really became um, like a, a center that many women come and practice in. And Tanisara Bhikkhu says it's still in existence today. Even though she died in 1978, her sister took it over for some time until the 90s when she died, and now it's run by uh, a group, but still is in existence, and many women come and practice there. So, yeah, living a very simple life. And he says, um, mostly she practiced on her own. She didn't have like one in-person teacher. She did a lot from books, both the Pali Canon and also books of current Thai teachers. But a lot of her practice was just there on her own. I don't know if you got a sense. I'll just read a couple of things from her. Incredibly straightforward no nonsense, calling it like it is, always speaking the truth, always for awakening, you know, really dedicated and just just down to earth. So I'll just read a couple things to give you a feeling. The first she's just describing when they first went to the forest. Coming to the forest and living very simply, I came to feel lighthearted and free. Seeing nature all around me, inspired me to explore inside my own mind. Then a little poem. With no struggling, no thinking, the mind, still, will see cause and effect vanishing into the void. Attached to nothing, letting go, knowing that this is the way to allay all stress. So this book, just pick up a place and look at it. I mean, you know... (laughs) It's a lot of the same kind of stuff. I I couldn't even decide which one to pick, just to give you a sense of her end of all. I think I decided on this one. The Buddha taught that we are to know with our own hearts and minds. Even though many, many words and phrases have been coined to explain the Dhamma, we need focus only on the things we can know and see, extinguish and let go of right in each moment of the immediate present. That's much better than taking on a load of other things. 
Once we can read and comprehend our inner awareness, we'll understand deep within that the Buddha awakens to the truth right here in the heart. His truth is truly the language of the heart. I could go on, but I want to this. Just, just straightforward. No nonsense. Okay, one more. <laughs> Let's see. I just like reading it. Okay. Well, she's talking about, you know, just kind of stilling your mind. When something succeeds in distracting you, it will fool you into seeing it as right, wrong, good, bad, and so forth. Eventually, you have to come down to the awareness that everything simply arises, persists, and then disbands. Make sure you stay focused on the disbanding. Disbanding means coming apart. If you watch just the arising, you may get carried off on a tangent. But if you focus on the disbanding, you'll see emptiness. Everything is disbanding every instant. No matter what you look at, no matter what you see, it's there for just an instant and then disbands. Then it arises again. Then it disbands. There's simply arising, knowing, disbanding. So let's watch what happens of its own accord. Because the arising and disbanding that occurs by way of the senses is something that happens on its own. You can't prevent it. You can't force it. If you look and know it without attachment, the mind will be unaffected by the confusion that comes from joy or sorrow. Just pure and simple, (laughs) straight to the point. So she was a really powerful teacher in the 20th century. Okay, so back to the enlightened nuns. And she's another very famous one who was one of the most influential nuns, one of the most skillful teachers. She's mentioned, it says, in the Terigata, in the other poems, more than any other of the nuns. And she's one who came to the Buddha and the Dhamma from enormous suffering. I mean, it's one of these stories that, you know, you can't think it could really be true because it's just too much. But I'll tell it. So she was from a wealthy banker's family in Savati, and they were arranging a marriage for her. But she happened to fall in love with one of the servants, which, of course, would never be allowed to marry. So they ran away. So they ran away and got married, you know, went to another area. Her family disowned her. She got um, pregnant. They wanted to go home, so they started walking home, but she had the baby before they got there, so they went back. She got pregnant again, and they, they kept putting off going, you know, because they didn't exactly expect a warm welcome. So they started again when she was quite pregnant, and again she started to... Um, have the baby. So this is like there's, she's having the baby. There's a huge, huge monsoon storm starts. So she's in a field. Her husband goes off to, you know, cut down some rushes and try and make a little lean-to shelter. He gets bitten by a poisonous snake and dies. 
so he never comes back. So she has the baby, and so she struggles on with a, a newborn and a little, like, you know, one- or two-year-old. So she's struggling on to get to her parents, gets to a river that normally you could walk across, but because of the huge storm, it's a raging torrent. So she's like, how can I get across? She couldn't get across holding both babies. So she, you know, she takes, tells the, the toddler to wait, takes the newborn and leaves it on the other bank, comes back to get the toddler. This is where it really starts to get out there. So the, the newborn's on a bank, and a giant um, eagle or bird of prey swoops down and takes it. So she's halfway through the, the water with the other kid, sees that, and gets you know all upset, tries to run over, loses the grip on the other kid, gets washed away. So both the kids die. She's like crazed at this point. Keeps on going. It's not over. Keeps on going. Gets to her home village. And she sees smoke coming up from somewhere in the distance. And she says, well, what's that smoke? What's that fire? And the people recognize her. And they said, don't ask us that. Ask us anything but that. And it was her, her parents' house that had just burned and they had just died. So she basically, it snapped her mind, and she spent years just wandering around, uh, really out of her mind. Her name is Patichar, it's kind of called Cloak Walker, she was just walking in circles, and so at some point after, I don't know, maybe years, she came to the Jetta Grove, and not to Pindaka's Grove, where the Buddha was teaching, and she was mad and walking in circles, and again, not, not Ananda, but some of the other people said, no, get away, get away. They're throwing rocks at her, trying to keep her away, you know, from the Blessed One. But he, of course, sees this and goes to her and talks to her and says, Sister, recover your presence of mind, which she did, as the Buddha remember. <laughs> Sister, <laughs> recover your presence of mind. And she did. And then, you know, she told him her whole story. And this is, again, the power of hearing the truth, absolute hearing the truth, no candy coating, but coming from someone you know it's the truth. So it's said that he said, don't think that you have come to someone who can help that. In your many lives, you have shed more tears for the dead than the waters in the four oceans. And he's really saying this is the first noble truth. And then... When we ourselves die, no one else can help us. Even in this world, no family can really end our suffering. And so then, of course, he preached the Dhamma. She really touched and asked to ordain. And together they went to the community of nuns, and she was accepted as a bhikkhuni. So incredible, you know, suffering. And the Buddha not just saying, oh, yeah, that's really tough, but yes, this is how it is. There's many examples of where the suffering really is the, the catalyst to see through our confusion and wake up. So she is said to have become one of the uh, most accessible and one of the better teachers, one who really affected a lot of women. So I thought I'd read her poem. And this poem, this one is a new kind of translation interpretation that hasn't come out yet, but will soon. Translated, interpreted by a friend of ours. And I like, the, I like her poem because 
It's one of the few that's actually describing her moment of awakening. Right at the end, that's what she's describing. Farmers turn up the soil, plant seeds, and wait. All by itself, water pours down from the sky and turns earth into food. I keep all the precepts and always wake before dawn. I don't pretend to to know more than I do. And when others ask for help, I do what I can. Yet after all these years, where's my harvest? Late one evening, I was washing my feet after another long day of sitting and walking. The water poured over my feet and onto the ground. I let my mind go, and it flowed downhill with the water toward my little hut. I went inside, sat on the bed, and lowered the wick of the lamp. All by itself, the flame went out. All by itself, the flame went out. She doesn't mean the lamp, right? You got it, right? It's a metaphor. But because of her life, she had deep, deep compassion. And so many of the women who joined, became bhikkhunis, could really go to her for teaching and understanding. So I want to tell you then about Deepama because she came to the Dhamma through huge suffering. I think, did Guy tell you her story the other night? Anyway, she came through huge suffering. And she was a, she was a ball of energy, I'll tell you. You know, I first met her in, the, I think it was 1980, when she first came here with uh, her daughter Deepa. And her husband, they'd separated, and her grandson Rishi, who was just two or three, and he was, you know... The terrible twos, holy terror. And I can still remember, she was maybe four feet tall. Tiny little lady with a little gray hair pulled back in a bun. And I can remember her, you know, with all the love in her heart and good humor, running after Rishi, you know, trying to catch him, you know, with her white sari flapping and just running all over because he never sat still for a moment. She was really a lot of fun. I'll tell you another story about her after. But... So her life, you know, she had a happy, happy marriage. She's from, the, um, from, from Calicut, from the Indian um, Barua family, which is a, a Buddhist clan in India. But at some point, she and her husband, who had a happy marriage, moved to Burma, where he was working. And they really wanted children, but it took many years. And finally, she had, her first two children died as babies. And, she, and then finally, they had one who lived. That was Deepa. But this, their dying, just she became so distraught, really. Though in Burma, so she became ill for years. Even though Deepa was still alive, she was in bed, and her husband was, you know, really devotedly taking care of her. But she's just depressed and ill for years. And then, in 1957, her husband had a heart attack and died. And then she really just kind of sank down. She was in her mid 40s. Deepa was seven years old, and her health just continued to deteriorate. She was just lost, lost in grief and confusion for years. Earlier, 
many years earlier, she had wanted to go meditate, and her husband had said, no, no, you're too young. This is before she sank into all the grief. So in her mind, she really hadn't practiced at all. But she just had this deep faith that she needed to do that. But in this you know, sense of grief and illness, she just couldn't get it together. But finally, she did. She started thinking, you know, I'm going to die. What can I take with me? She looked at all her possessions, even her daughter. She said, no, you know, I can't take any of this with me. I need to go. She went to a meditation center. A Buddha, oh, a Buddha appeared in a dream. She knew she must practice. So she went to one meditation center, and she obviously had strong parami. She got incredibly, deeply, deeply absorbed in just a couple, three days. The story is so much so that she was doing walking meditation, and suddenly she couldn't move her leg. She said, what's going on? And for the longest time, she couldn't move her leg. And finally, she looked down. And a big dog had its like jaws around her leg, you know, she hadn't even felt it or noticed. Okay, we're <laughs> it's another realm, right? But anyway, so so they came and took it off and she was worried about rabies and so went to start the series of rabies shots. And because it was at a certain time every day and in the meditation center you only had one meal a day, she was missing the meal every day. So she got very weak. And she was weak to begin with. So, you know, the monk said, maybe you should go home. So she went home that time. And it was another few years. But then um, she heard that a friend of her family's, another member of the clan, Anagarika Munindra, who we've spoken about, was in Burma and living at the Mahasi centers, Mahasi Sathaniyekta. And so he came and visited her, and knowing, you know, he's a family friend, spoke her language, and he said, yes, you must come and meditate. So then she went to the Mahasi Center and, again, got so, uh, so deeply into the practice, so quickly. By the third day, she was sitting so long, Manindra came and said, no, you're getting unbalanced. You've got to get up and go to the talk. <laughs> but she was so weak, because she was still really weak, then she wasn't eating because she got so into practice. So don't do that. She got so she had to like crawl up the stairs to get to the Dhamma talk. But anyway, as these stories go, which is very much like the the Arhat nuns, she had very deep, deep awakening very quickly, very quickly. And uh, this is what she said. Just to read one thing she said. Those who knew Deepama were fascinated by her transformation. Almost overnight, she had changed from a sickly, dependent, grief-stricken woman into a healthy, independent, radiant being. Deepama told those around her, You have seen me. I was disheartened and broken down due to the loss of my husband and children, and due to disease. I suffered so much, I could not walk properly. But now, how are you finding me? All my disease is gone. I am refreshed. There is nothing in my mind. There is no sorrow, no grief. I am quite happy. If you come to meditate, you will also be happy. There is no magic. Only follow instructions. (laughs) (laughs) And it always says that I didn't make it up. (laughs) 
And as I said, she was a real bundle of energy, even in her old age. She and Deepa and Rishi lived in a very small, crummy little, like, one-room apartment in Calcutt. It had really very little money. But a really powerful, powerful teacher. So as I said, I met her in the 1980. And the last time I saw her was 1989. Uh, Several friends, she was not so healthy. And I, I think she died like the next year, maybe. We went to Bodh Gaya. She was there at that time with Deepa and Rishi. And we went there to visit her because we knew we wouldn't see her again. And this is, again, she's a little and old. But you, you can't even imagine that she was so sick and weak like that. So I remember two things I remember from that time. One was I had just that, that, that few months before developed a, a kind of autoimmune disease that was very much affecting my movement. It was hard for me to move. And traveling in India, I couldn't have done it without a bunch of friends. So she's like, oh, you must exercise. And she bounds up and runs over to the wall and puts her hand on the wall and starts vigorously swinging her feet around and doing all this exercise. <laughs> this is what you must do. Right? <laughs> she was well. And then she said to Joseph, I don't know if Guy told you this story, no, who had been her student for many, many years and knew her very well. She says to Joseph, Joseph, you should sit for two days. He goes, oh, I often do. She says, no, sit down for two days. <laughs> what she would do, you know. Joseph being Joseph, of course, he just laughed. He said, yeah, right. (laughs) But that's how she was, again, you know. He's like filled with love, but not what we would call, oh, compassion. Yeah, that's tough. You know, you shouldn't sit for two days. It might strain you, you know. Come on, sit for two days. Oh, you can't walk. What do you mean? Jump up, exercise. Come on, let's get on with it. Really quite an, an amazing person, really amazing. One last quotation from her. There is so much sameness in ordinary life. We are always experiencing everything through the same set of lenses. When greed, hatred, and delusion are gone, you see everything fresh and new all the time. Every moment is new. Life was dull before. Now every day, every moment is full of taste and zest. So don't be afraid of no greed, no hatred, no danger. (laughs) Don't be afraid of it. Okay, in terms of another nun I wanted to tell you about who's alive now in Burma. She didn't come through so much suffering, but she's also a very well-known teacher in Burma. Her name is Doyuzana. And she um, is a teacher, uh, very well known. She's uh, not a bhikkhuni, because in Burma they don't allow bhikkhunis really. She's an eight precept nun. But she's a teacher and she's been practicing, sincere practitioner, in the, the Mogok style of meditation, which we in the West don't know that well, but it's, it's equally popular in Burma as the Mahasi style. Many, many people practice it. And it, it's a, I haven't practiced it myself. I've just been around her when she does it. A, they're both you know, cultivating samatha and vipassana, but they use the dependent origination. And any, any retreat that's in Mogok style would be a big wheel of life, dependent origination up there. 
leaves on a panasati. Very, so she's a very uh, deep practitioner, really dedicated. So she told us her story one time. And she only speaks Burmese, but go with friends who can translate. And she really wanted to become a nun. And she was a teenager, and her parents didn't want her to. And she told us later, in fact, her father would beat her to, when she would try to go off and be a nun. But finally, she managed to. And at the, where she lives now is she has her own um, kind of house and meditation hall, but it was on another on the Sayadals, which is a, a, a monk's monastery. But she was the one, we've known her for some years, who was really well known for her depth of practice, her deep devotion, and also <laughs> she's kind of psychic. She, so this is kind of like the other side of the thing. But she, um, you know, Nagas, which are the big snakes that protected the Buddha. So she has a real kind of connection to spirit Nagas. If you come in, you know, as you come in to the, uh, before her house, there's kind of a big fountain. You'll see sometimes all over Burma, statues of a Buddha when, uh, with a big snake protecting him with its, you know, with its cobra-like thing out, protecting him from the elements. That's a very common Buddha image, you see. So she has lots of Naga um, statues around. And she actually has kind of Naga spirits that talk to her. And uh, she's actually quite psychic. A lot of, so a lot of people go to her for that. And she'll happily, you know, if you come and really ask about people you love, or she'll, she'll be happy to talk to the Nagas and tell you what the Nagas say. But her love is the Dhamma. And again, she's a profoundly committed teacher. So one time, with some friends, we went to visit her. It was her birthday. And on your birthday, it's a common thing to offer a meal to whoever, but usually to a nunnery or a monastery. So she happened to be teaching a retreat of, how many, about 100 people. She was teaching it alone, men and women, not just women. So it was a residential retreat. She was teaching it alone. She was offering the lunch meal. Not only offering, she was cooking it. So we came in. She's cooking the lunch meal. The hundred yogis come in this slow line, you know, to get their food and (laughs) went away. And then she hung out with us and invited us to eat. Amazing energy. But when we talked to her, her sense of the Dhamma, again, is this very straightforward, no-nonsense, you know. Um, she's often saying, I just would wish I could just go off and just practice, just meditate. But she can't because in 2007, when there was the huge um, cyclone, Nargis, which I think I mentioned last week, she felt compelled, or maybe the Nagas told her, I'm not sure, but she felt compelled to start a school. But I mentioned a lot of nuns have started schools, but she did it like on a whole other level of really a beautifully built building, hiring teachers, but the best teachers, on the level with the best teachers, so that's a lot more expensive. And she started with 200 girls. I think it might be about 400 now that come. Many of them live there. Some of them are nuns, not all. And she has it all the way through 10th standard, which is the highest standard you can go. And when we go and talk to her, she's so grounded. She gives us more sense of what's really going on in the society than almost any, any other person I've talked to. 
you know, so she has deep faith. She, so she's totally committed to having the school and helping these girls really have a life, but also to bring them to liberation. That's foremost in her mind. She can't go off and practice because she's the sole earner of the dana. It's all on dana. And it's a huge amount every year to run the school, to hire the teachers, to feed the young girls. That's a lot. She'll, she'll show us that she, you know, incredibly detailed and carefully kept um, accounts. Of course, it's in Burmese. I can't read it, but you know, my friends can. With each donation and how much it was, you know, through the whole year, and it's a lot. So she's so dedicated, and sometimes she's just so tired. You can see some years there's been some difficulty with the Sayadaw. Probably, I think, because she was more famous more known than he, but anyway, it got petty and nasty, as these things do. So now, in this whole uh, ground that was her nunnery and his, his monastery, there's kind of like a fence <laughs> down it, you know. But she's still living there and practicing and taking care of these young girls. And she would just, of the school, and sometimes she I just wish I could just go off and practice, you know. A few years ago, Steve Smith tried to bring her over. We were going to have her and him teach a month at the Forest Refuge, and she couldn't get a visa. And this was years ago. Couldn't get a visa to U.S. And this was like 10 years ago. Single woman, single unmarried woman. They're afraid, you know, they're going to come and get married here. Like a monk, they don't think that. But for a nun, it didn't really register, and she couldn't get in twice, two different times. Her visa was refused, so she's kind of given up on that. But she's, yeah, and she's also very funny. Again, she's so direct. We were talking, um, I think it was last year, and she was just saying some of the stuff that's going on in Burma, some of which is horrible, and some is just as, never mind that the Rakhine stuff is really horrible, but even just that it's opening up. There's more, for instance, sex trade than there ever was as it's opening up to other countries and money, just as it goes. So she sees that, you know, because of she's working with young women up until about 16. She's really tuned in. So we were just talking about how, how crazy the world seems somehow and how people are doing things that seem so horrible and they seem so proud of it. And she goes, yes, it's as if people tied up their mother and father and they're beating them and they think this is a really good thing to do. Just saying people are crazy. So she's a, a very powerful woman and a lot of fun to hang out with and very inspiring. Doa Yuzina, just outside of Rangoon. Okay, I guess that's all. I'll just read you two more short poems from this, from the... From the um, from the first Buddhist nuns. But again, this is from this new translation by Matt Weingast. So another Uttara, and this is to Patachara. I asked Patachara, what is the path? Patachara said, just see all thoughts, words, and actions arising all by themselves, not from some imaginary point within. I only partly understood, but I took a seat. As the sun was setting, I saw the endless line of one thing leading to another, 
that had brought me to the cushion that night. As the moon was coming up, I saw the arising and passing away of all things in every direction. As dawn was breaking, wisdom rose in the east and set fire to the long, dark night. But don't take my word for it. Set fire to the darkness within. I promise it's like nothing you've ever seen. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.